From the book of Numbers, chapter 22, verses 36 through 38, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied, but I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Before we get into Balaam's story, I want to tell another story, another uh, moment from history, a little bit more recent history from 1864. Back in 1864, there was this painter named Francis Bicknell Carpenter, and he kind of invited himself to the White House. Uh, they were enthusiastic. They were happy to welcome him, but it was kind of by his initiative. He wanted to come to the White House while Abraham Lincoln was there because he wanted to create a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. The Emancipation Proclamation had been um, had been signed about a year earlier, and uh, this painter named Francis Bicknell Carpenter wanted to, to do a great work to commemorate it. So he asked if he could come share in the life of the White House, see how things go, get a feel for the place, and then paint a portrait. So he goes, and the, the White House welcomes him. And for six months, he had almost total access uh, to the president's office, to Abraham Lincoln's office. He got a feel for the day in, day out stuff. He not only painted the painting that almost everybody here has almost certainly seen, the famous painting, life-size portrait of Abraham Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation. But every day, as he was there in the president's office in, in the White House, uh, this, uh, this painter, Carpenter, would, uh, would take a moment to just sketch the visitors of the day and take notes on who it was that came in and out, cabinet secretaries, regular visitors, just anybody who came in and out. He would just observe and see what went on in the day of the life of the White House. He ended up publishing a book called Six Months in the White House about his experience in which he told about some of the thoughts and the conversations between those people that he had sketched. And one of his favorite moments, one of those that was particularly meaningful to him was a moment when a very pious and very self-important minister came to talk to President Lincoln and came to President Lincoln and tried to offer blessing to the to the Union, to the Northern side in the middle of the Civil War that was still going on. This, this minister comes to, to President Lincoln and says, Mr. President, I certainly hope and I will pray that the Lord will be on our side. And Lincoln stopped the preacher dead in his track by saying, quote, I am not at all concerned about that, about whether God is on our side. For I know that God is always on the side of what is right. No, it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on God's side rather than that we should get him on ours. Two weeks. I've been preaching on faith and politics. Woods has been doing the same. And it turns out that Abraham Lincoln said most of what we've been trying to say. 16 decades ago, when faced with some of the most existential questions of leadership in a more divided world than the, this nation has ever seen, Abraham Lincoln saw it clearly. He saw it clearly how often we are tempted to make a really brash and bold declaration that God is on our side because we are unwilling to do the humble 
inquiry about what is on God's on what on God's side. We're afraid to ask. God, what would it really mean to be on your side? Sometimes I think because we're afraid of the answer. We're afraid of finding out that God's side might not line up with our side. We're also afraid of learning that following Jesus is never as easy as choosing a side. It was a theme that Lincoln would revisit after the war. In his second inaugural address, he said this. He said, both North and South read the same Bible. They pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against each other. And now we have seen the prayers of both could not be answered. And those of neither have been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. You know what? I bet you believe that. I bet you already know that. I have heard from so many of you over the last couple of weeks. You've been so generous with your own thoughts and your own appreciation and commentary on these last two weeks of worship. Most of you have said something along the lines of, thanks for the reminder. I think most of us know, even if we don't always remember, that we want to live on God's side even when we're not exactly sure which side that means. And just about every person here has had the experience that God's side isn't really a side at all. It's more like a line. In fact, Jesus would say it's a straight and narrow path between two very broad sides. By the way, whenever you hear that phrase, the straight and the narrow, I want you to remember that the word straight doesn't mean it doesn't curve or bend. It's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. You can go look it up in your King James Bible, that phrase, straight and narrow, S-T-R-A-I-T. Like the Straits of Gibraltar or like being in dire straits. Jesus was saying that following Jesus, Jesus was saying that following after him is like a narrow path. It's going to have twists and turns. That it's the sort of thing where you can easily fall off to one side or another. There's no autopilot that's going to just guide you through. Oh, I got this. Now I can just keep going in the same direction at all times. No, you can't follow Jesus by giving him your assumptions about what's going to come next. The only way you can follow Jesus is by giving him your attention. Saying, where has he led me now? It's a line. A line between two very broad paths, two very broad sides. If there's anybody who captures that in the Bible, then surely it is Balaam. If you know Balaam's story, it is probably the only story you know out of the book of Numbers. It is certainly the best known. And if you know the story, then you probably know that there is a brief moment in time. We're going to get there. A brief moment in time when Balaam had a talking donkey. The OG talking donkey, long before Shrek made it cool. And we're going to get to that. But it's an absolute shame. If all you really know about Balaam's story is about the talking donkey, it's a real shame if you have written it off as some sort of side quest or fun story or fairy tale somehow worked into the Bible because Balaam's story is as real as it gets. It's a story about all the ways that we can get God wrong and all the ways that we want to get God right. And it's a story that ought to feel incredibly real to anyone who has ever found that following God sometimes means taking a narrow path rather than taking sides. And the first thing, the realest thing that we know about Balaam, whom we just heard from in the scripture this morning, first thing we know about him is that he doesn't have a side. Book of Numbers describes him simply as Balaam, son of Baor, who lived in Pethor beside the Euphrates. 
We don't really know what that means. We don't know where Hethor was, but we know that the Euphrates is nowhere near the land of Moab or the land of Israel or any of the sides that are involved in the story that is about to unfold. We know that the Euphrates River is nowhere near the Jordan River or any of the other places that we visit in the book of Numbers. Suffice to say, Balaam is from far off. At this point in the book of Numbers, what we know is that the Israelites have made it out of Egypt. They've made it through the wilderness of Mount Sinai, and they have spent nearly 40 years living as a nomadic people in what is now modern-day Jordan. And we know that's not where Balaam's from. And in this time, in the eyes of all their neighbors, the defining characteristic of the Israelites is that there are a ton of them. They just keep growing. Everywhere they go, they have lots and lots of kids, and those kids survive into adulthood. And whether they're in Egypt or Edom or Paran, every nation that they are near as they are going on this nomadic journey to the promised land, every nation comments on how many Israelites there are. The king of Moab that Balaam was talking to just a moment ago in the passage we read, he said, if they move into this country, they're going to be like locusts that eat up all the grass. He says, this land is not fertile enough to support all these people. He's worried by this mass influx of the Israelites who want to pass through his land on the way to the promised land. And so he calls, he sends his advisors on a quest to find this man named Balaam, a guy who lives way far off, a man who is neither a Moabite nor an Israelite. And we don't know much about Balaam, but what we do know is strange. We know, for instance, that he comes from the Euphrates. We also know that he was a major figure outside of the Bible. It was about 60 years ago that archaeologists in Jordan found a tablet with the name of someone named Balaam, son of Baor, who sees visions from the gods. But finally, we know that Balaam somehow knows the name of the one true God. And this is where we have to pay attention because it gets kind of tricky. According to Numbers, when Balak, the king of Moab, sends his advisors to this foreign vision seer named Balaam, Balaam's first response is, I could not do anything, great or small, to go beyond the command of Yahweh my God. Now spend the night here so I can find out what else Yahweh will tell me. And in the context of the Bible, in the context of the book of Numbers, this is an incredible reveal. This is the moment when if the Bible had a soundtrack, which maybe it should, if it had a soundtrack, this would be the moment where you hear dun-dun-dun. Because Balaam has spoken of God as Yahweh. That's the name that God spoke on Mount Sinai to Moses. It's the name that Moses gave to the Israelites. It's the name that had not been known before that. The Israelites are supposed to be the only people who, has, who have ever heard, or uttered, or even heard this name for God. And we also know that Balaam hasn't just heard about this God. It's not just a name for Balaam. But we know that Balaam tells the messengers from Moab that he's going to listen to what Yahweh tells him. So you have this man who has... None of the, uh, the, the communal trappings of the nation of Israel. He doesn't have the Ten Commandments in his possession. He's never lived in Egypt with them. He didn't grow up with the stories of the God of Abraham. He somehow, even so, living far, far away, knows the name of the one true God and listens to him. And then 
when he goes and listens to God, when these messengers come and say, hey, would you come and would you say a word for us? Would you come help us out? Balaam goes and he listens to God and he comes back to the messengers from Moab and he says, this is what God said. If these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do. So recap, the king of Moab wants this foreign vision seer, God listener to come and curse the Israelites so that the Israelites will not overtake the country of Moab. We have these two sides, Moab and Israel. Balaam is not on either. He's been asked to come and bless one side and curse the other. And his response has been to say, I will only do what God tells me. And he says, God has told me, if these men have come to summon you, then you can get up and go with them. That's what God said to Balaam. If these men have come to summon you, you can get up and go with them. And so Balaam takes that as permission. Sounds like that to a lot of us. It sounds pretty simple. It sounds like God is saying, go see the king, but keep listening to me. And that's what Balaam does. The next day he saddles up on his donkey. He gets on the road and he starts going to see the king of Moab because God has said, if these men have summoned you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you. But then the text says something even stranger. It says that God's anger was kindled because of Balaam's going which is really hard to figure out. Why is God angry at Balaam for doing what God just said Balaam could do? Balaam said, should I go with these men? And God said, if these men have come to summon you, you can go with them, just keep listening to me. Balaam got up, he's going with them. And now we're told that God is angry. You can imagine, there's a lot of language study around this. There are a lot of people who have tried to parse all this out, but of all the interpretations, the one that makes the most sense to both the text and to the consistent, faithful character of God is this. That God was inviting Balaam into a conversation and Balaam quit listening. The only thing that makes sense to this is that when God said, if these men have come to summon you, he was asking Balaam to do some soul searching. He was saying, are you in danger? The king has sent this, this retinue of armed people. Are they going to kill you? Are they going to punish you for not coming with you? If so, then go. I'm not going to ask you to put your life in danger over this. But if these guys are not summoning you, if they are not commanding, commanding you, if you only want to go with them because the king is offering you wealth and glory, if you'll take his side, well, then that's a different matter. I'm not just reading this into the verses. As we go through the rest of the book of Numbers, we see Balaam trying to sneak his way into the Israelite camp on one side, and then later we see him on the side of some of their enemies, the Midianites. And throughout the book of Numbers, from this point on, we see that this guy named Balaam has a unique calling from God and a unique gift for understanding God's heart. But over and over, he chooses to step off that straight and narrow path in order to ingratiate himself with one side or the other. And it's while he's on his way to Moab to go bless the side of the king of Moab and curse the people of Israel that the whole thing with the donkey happens. If you haven't heard it, I'm going to go through this quick, but you really should read the whole thing from Numbers 22. 
Balaam, Balaam is riding on his uh, on the road, and an angel of the Lord appears before him with a drawn sword. And Balaam has quit paying attention. He can't see him, but the donkey sees it. So the donkey goes off the road and in the process crushes Balaam's foot. And Balaam is furious. He pulls out his walking stick. He just starts wailing on the donkey, beating him. And then the book of Numbers says that the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And the donkey said, why are you beating me? Am I not your donkey, which you have ridden every day to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Have I been in the habit of going off the path? Have I been in the habit of stepping on your feet, of crushing you? Have I been in the habit of acting like this? And that's when Balaam's eyes were opened and he saw the messenger from God and he fell on his place, face and he offered to go back. He said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gotten on the road. I wasn't in it for the right reasons. Do you want me to go back? And the angel says, no, no, no. Go on to the king of Moab. But remember, say only what I tell you. And that's what brings us to the passage I read earlier. Balaam finally stands before the king of Moab, but not on his side. He says, I can only say what God tells me to say. And the king asks him several times to curse the Israelites, to invoke God's power against them, to identify a weakness or a way in, a way to defeat them and to proclaim it and to announce it. And every single time Balaam stands up and he blesses them. And he gets none of the glory and none of the gold and none of the reward that the king of Moab had promised him. But he knows the heart of God. And he lives long enough to see all his words and all his blessings come true. And Balaam's not a real hero for us. <laughs> He's not exactly a role model, but he is uncomfortably real and relevant for our present moment. Because I think in, uh, in a modern democracy, every single Christian who lives in it has been given a calling that is a lot like Balaam's. Like Balaam, we don't belong to any of the tribes around us. We were not baptized into the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, the Libertarian, the Green, or even the Independent Party. We've been baptized into the kingdom of God, even though most folks don't know where that is. But because we, not all Christians, but all of us who live here this morning, because we live in a democracy, the various tribes are going to ask us for blessings and for curses. They're going to ask for our endorsements and our donations. They'll ask us to speak out and speak into every issue of the day on social media, our message threads with friends, any number of ways. They want us to offer blessings or curses. And it would be so convenient, so good for my ego, if I could just tell you today which side to choose, it would be even more convenient if I could tell you to opt out entirely. Survey after survey says that's what most folks are doing anyway. Most folks say that most of the time, they aren't very excited about voting for a candidate. What gets them up in the morning is the chance to vote against another one. They're just desperate to vote against the other side. And sometimes that's all the kings of this world need. They don't need you to bless them. They just need you to curse the other side. Or they need you to give up. But Balaam's story is more complicated than that. And our calling is more than that. We are not called to choose a side. 
We're to sit in the middle of the road. We are called to walk the straight and the narrow, to go and to be a witness and to offer blessings in the name of God. And we are called to work for the common good. I heard it recently. Jesus told us there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are our neighbors whom he commanded us to love. And there are our enemies whom he commanded us to love. We are called to action, to love in action, not to opt out, but also not to take sides. And sometimes that will mean going, and sometimes it will mean stopping, and sometimes it means proceeding with caution. And in that spirit, I want to leave you with three signs that we can follow in the story of Balaam. They're not really signs. They're more like traffic symbols, a red light, a yellow light, and a green light for you. And it's a red light every time you find yourself cursing or abusing those who are closest to you. Don't just remember that Balaam had a donkey. Remember what the donkey said. He said, am I not your donkey? You've known all these years. Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Or do you think maybe something else is going on? When you decide that you just can't stay silent anymore, I hope your first thought will be about how your words will strike the person who is closest to you. Closest to you relationally and emotionally, also just closest to you geographically. Person who sits next to you at your office, sits next to you in the seats in worship. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in my office listening to someone or opened my email to read and hear from someone who said, when my church friend said this, when that staff member at the church said this, when my relative said this, I think they forgot about me. They didn't realize they were calling me stupid, dangerous, coward, bigot, evil, they were talking about those people, and they made me one of them. Can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, it's gotten hard to sit and worship next to them or near them, knowing what they really think of me. If there's any chance at all that your words or your actions could land like a rod on the back of someone who's been there for you or at least offered to be so, then stop. Red light, your soul is in danger. Stop. And someone tells you that you're out of line, I'd, I don't care if that hurts to hear. They're probably saving you from something much worse. Jesus once said, what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Might add, what does it profit to win the argument and lose your soul in the process too? Stop when you are seeing red. Stop whenever your anger turns against your friends, your family, those who love you, who want to be there for you. And then proceed with caution whenever someone else uses their anger to try and turn you into a friend. That's a yellow light right there. If anyone ever appeals to you the way the king of Moab appealed to Balaam, says, hey, look, if we can curse the same people, we can be on the same side. Be very, very wary you want to know the truth, what Christian politics should look like? It should mostly be boring, relentlessly boring. We should read boring news until we can't take it anymore. If you read boring news, then you'll get tired of it and you'll go do something better with your life. 
We should be informed. We should know details. But we should be very, very wary of those who use the words like news or politics or what's going on in the world as a cover for entertainment or to simply get us on their side of their own anger. I once had a church member ask if I uh, ever watched their favorite news commentator, their favorite news show. And I I said, uh, no, I'd never seen it. And then I asked, what do you like so much about this person? You know, what what am I missing out on? She said, oh, he just gets me so fired up. I only watch after. Two, I only have to watch two minutes every night and I'm madder than a wet hornet. And I resolved never to watch that show because I might not have Balaam's resolve. I might say more than God gave me to say if I am too willing to be entranced by someone else's anger. It's a disaster when our anger turns away someone that we love, but it's not much better when our loves are based on anger when it is anger that binds us, that should be a yellow light. Proceed with caution. Love the relationship. Love to understand, to hear someone where they're coming from, but be very cautious that you don't get caught up in it. It's a green light. Anytime we have the opportunity to offer a blessing and help others see more clearly. I want you to hear the second blessing of the one that Balaam spoke once he finally met Balak and he said what God had put into his mouth to say. This is from Numbers chapter 23. He says, Arise, Balak, and listen. God is not human that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Yahweh their God is with them. And it will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. And before that moment, Balaam knew the name of God, but in that moment, he learned more. He saw the kinds of things that he had missed on the road. He saw what God was up to. He shared the name of God with Balak. And he saw that the people of Israel had their own calling. He saw them as a blessing. If Balak had listened, he could have seen it too. And I I think that's what Christian politics are supposed to look like. It's a people who refuse to curse even those they love, even by accident. It's a people who are extremely reluctant to applaud when someone else appeals to our mutual anger. But it is also a people who will jump up to bless whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is good, not just for one side or the other, but for the common good. We should celebrate good ideas and good results no matter where they come from. Cast your vote and raise your voice by amplifying what works and what blesses and what makes a difference rather than what gets one over on the other team. That's how you create common ground. And let's be a people who refuse to say anything more about all of it than what God has said. Even if that means we're never quite at home in one side or another. And let's remember that the folks with whom we disagree, those whom we find strange, those we can't figure out, even folks like Balaam, just might be the ones in the end to keep us on the straight and narrow. Because whenever we find ourselves pulled to one side or another, we need someone else who's going to pull us back in line. And thank God for every single one of them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.